BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 278. Have you ever asked one of those, I wonder where this started questions? I wonder where this came from? questions. I wonder who was the first person to think of eating an oyster. Or, I wonder who was the first person to build a gate, like a fence gate or a garden gate. Like, who came up with that? Or, who invented the semicolon? Or, who invented ketchup? This is a really fun kind of question, and it would be really fun if the world worked this way. But just about everything that surrounds us today, the food we eat, the tools we use, the vehicles we operate, from bicycles to cars to airplanes, none of them have a single inventor. Pretty much all of human culture, including our artifice, the artifacts and objects and the culinary delights we create, they all began by... Lots of people combining lots of things, and some of those things slowly evolving generation by generation, household by household, exchange by exchange. The present, in all its forms, arrived via iteration. Lots of tiny changes, lots of additions and subtractions, until some standards became more popular than others. And there are many factors as to why that would be. And The results of all of this evolution are categories. Categories like ketchup. Because there is no one true ketchup. No single platonic form of ketchup. No essence. No, in philosophical terms, ketchup ground of being. But there is a category. As the philosopher Wittgenstein would have said, probably, There's a family resemblance we can all recognize that we call ketchup. And as such, there are many varieties in this category. Most we would easily discern as being not mustard. But at the edges, there are variations of ketchup that are a bit mustard-ish. There are variations all around the edges, and that's true for all categories of all things, including things that people have made. There are things that are more ketchup than not ketchup. In the same way, there are things that are more gate than not gate. More oyster than not oyster. You can find these ideas all over philosophy and cognitive linguistics, and I love them. Things like prototype theory and non-essentialism. And I've been thinking a lot about things like this lately because I'm working on a new book about what does the word genius really mean and how come I can't get a straight answer when I ask that question of many varieties of experts. And that work has taken me on several interesting journeys out there in the real world, in the world where we walk around, and in the abstract world of historical and scientific literature. I've met the people with the highest IQs in the world, the people who study this sort of thing, but I am particularly fascinated right now with the evolution of these categories and the evolution of language to describe those categories and how that's intertwined. In fact, language as a category is itself part of this process. Each word, each definition, even in the punctuation we use, 
All of this at the very meta level, meta, meta, meta level, are examples of examples of the things that they exemplify. And on this episode, I want to share with you some things that I learned when I interviewed Florence Hasrat, a scholar of punctuation, who, to my great surprise, informed me that while a lot of language is the result of a slow evolution, a gradual, ever-changing process, punctuation in the English language is often an exception to this. Sort of. I mean, the foundation was still a long, gradual process. But for questions like, who invented the semicolon? Someone did. A single person invented the semicolon. They woke up that morning, and the semicolon did not exist. Then they went to bed that night, and it did. The semicolon that you mentioned was invented by Aldo Manuzio, who is a printer in the late 15th century, working together with another writer who, again, felt that he needed a more nuanced pause. And so they kind of put together the colon and the comma to create the semicolon, the sort of half pause. Yes, a single dude, Aldo Manutius, or as Florence more correctly pronounced it, Aldo Manuzio. An Italian publisher, an extremely influential printer, a typesetter, a man with a lot of printing press clout, a printer in the days just after the invention of the printing press, who established the Aldine Press in Venice in 1494 and then began printing books the next year. It can't be understated how enormously influential printers like Aldo were in his time. They were like the first web developers to go into business after the invention of the internet the first app developers after the creation of the smartphone. And since books were about to change culture forever and nothing had yet been standardized, their inventions in the realm of printing became innovations in the realm of language itself. Aldo refined the use of the comma as the standard to indicate pauses. Then he also introduced italics. Yeah, italics, that's this guy initially just so he could fit more text on a page so he could sell smaller pocket-sized books. And yes, he invented the semicolon to make the long, intricate, complex, poetic, previously spoken out loud sentences of the classical works he was printing more readable. To indicate the difference between a short pause and a longer one. For emphasis... Florence Hazrat, she's a scholar of language and punctuation who wrote a book titled An Admirable Point about the evolution of the exclamation mark and the exclamation point. It's known by both terms, and we will get into that later. But yeah, she wrote a book about how it was invented, how it has evolved, in which she also details how punctuation itself was invented and how it evolved. I'm Florence Hazrat. I'm a researcher of English literature. And I used to work at the university. Now I turned writer and I write research for a public audience. So I make research about language and literature and culture accessible for the interested but non-specialist reader. And yes, punctuation was invented. For a very long time, written texts used scriptura continua, continuous script. It kind of looks like one of those word find puzzles, just a bunch of Words all mushed together. No pauses, no commas, and definitely no semicolons. Yes, I think it's all connected to what we think writing does and is. And in the past, people probably thought that writing was just another manifestation of speech. And because we don't really notice that we're pausing after words, we, we do. It's just so, like, so tiny, tiny, tiny that... Um, um, a recording device will be able to record that, but our kind of human ears or our brain doesn't realize that there's actually a pause after the word or after the sentence. So it didn't kind of make sense for people to put any mark or space or any sign or somehow or other mark up that there's actually a distinct word or a distinct sentence here in writing because they thought, well, it's just speech. And speech just seems like a 
a never-ending flow of words or of sound. And if it's literally nothing separate, it's nothing, not something else with its own rules, its own conception and so on, then it kind of makes sense that people wouldn't think of that. However, there are also other, um, other things at play. For example, Cicero, this great uh, Roman orator, thought punctuation was for babies because Latin and his Latin should be so, uh, the rhythm should be so clear and it should be so eloquent that you as a good, eloquent Latin speaker and, and reader should know when a sentence pauses or should know when a certain syntactical um, phenomenon is at an end. And if you don't, then that's <laughs> not his problem. You're just an inexperienced reader, an inexperienced speech writer, for example. And then also in Latin or in Greek or in Arabic and other languages, we do have certain words or grammatical structures that suggest that a, a question is coming. Like in French, for example, qu'est-ce que, and then est-ce que, and then you know, well, it's a question that's coming. So it didn't seem necessary for people to mark that somehow. As Florence explained to me, there was some proto-punctuation back in the 5th century BC, little horizontal dots used by the Greeks to indicate pauses while giving speeches. But that was really it. And as she just said, Romans who gave a lot of speeches, like Cicero, they were against using these marks. They considered them cheating or beneath the dignity of an educated orator. But once houses of scribes began copying the Bible and then plays and poetry and other texts, attempting to make it readable, to indicate proper pauses and things that before then had just been read out loud, well, that's when, that's when punctuation really began to get into written language, especially English, and mega especially, around the invention of the printing press, for a lot of similar reasons and new reasons. But as you will learn after this break, Thanks to this odd introduction of little marks to indicate pauses and emotions and the nuances of speech and intention, there's some weird history here. Some of the stories you're going to hear about after this break, we invented the question mark before we invented the exclamation point. And you'll also hear how punctuation was introduced later, way later, to a lot of classic texts and even famous plays like those of Shakespeare. And we will discuss the exclamation point in detail. And while we must now all negotiate with ourselves every single time we write an email to make sure that we aren't misunderstood, but also that we're not angry, but also that we're not too excited, but that we are excited. All that after this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before, and this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire 
and you will get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Welcome back to the show. I'm David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And as we were discussing before the break, Punctuation arrived within written language relatively recently. Some of the earliest known writing systems come from ancient Mesopotamia, around 3400 BCE. English, as a written language, arrives about 4,000 years later. And as we discussed earlier, the question mark wouldn't be invented for another 800 years. Here's Florence Hazrat again, an expert on language and punctuation, whose book, An Admirable Point, 
traces the history of both the question mark and the exclamation point. And yes, we invented the question mark before the exclamation point to solve a very specific conundrum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the question mark is a little bit older than the exclamation mark, just a tiny bit. And it came from the liturgy, the church liturgy, chanting biblical texts throughout the day. It's clear that the you know we, we lift our voices up when we ask a question. And so when the voice would go up in the in the singing, people would mark that with a kind of flat hook, let's say, that's sort of leaning to the right side and then a little circle at the bottom. So that's kind of coming from the from from uh, church practice. But it probably, the shape itself probably comes from an expression that says hooray. You can, you can possibly translate it as hooray. So io or io in Latin, which was written for space reasons and also just as an abbreviation with a circle at the bottom and then an I uh, kind of dangling from the top. So just bunched together io and that meant sort of hooray. And that then lent at some point to the right and got a little hook and then it's kind of got up uh, straight again. I, I just love, I love it. I love like, this is where the singing goes up. And, they, <laughs> and then they're like, hey, I'm asking you a question. This is something I want to know. Hey, where did you put the, the inkwell? <laughs> Before the break, we were exploring how, in the history of Western writing, most texts were written using continuous script, scriptura continua, no spaces between the words, no punctuation, just blocks and blocks of letters, lines and lines of letters. And if there were any marks, they usually were only put there to assist public speakers by suggesting a pause. And even then, the practice of noting pauses was considered amateurish or even insulting to the speaker, who many believe should determine on their own when they should pause based off the way they would like to deliver the oratory. As Florence explains, this continued with Latin texts in the Middle Ages for things that people were just going to read as a way of keeping that reading and writing difficult to parse for commoners. It was an effort to keep it exclusionary and off-limits to all but a privileged few to the elite, But once Christianity arrived in Europe and scribes began to copy texts over and over and over and over again, punctuation began to be introduced much more often, and it started to evolve, slowly. But then once the Renaissance began and the printing press arrived soon after, punctuation went through a sort of Cambrian explosion. And now, today, we are going through yet another explosion of playing with language, with emoji and text messaging and comment systems and so on, altering conventions and introducing all sorts of new marks and punctuations. How did punctuation kind of emerge and and sort of take over the world? Because it is in every language. It is in Brai, so blind people have punctuation. It is in sign language as well as in any any language uh, in the world. Um, at the beginning, as I said, there was this uh, just continuous script, at least in, in Western European writing systems. And there were marks and notes because you couldn't just read a text out and read it out loud because you wouldn't know where to stop unless you were Cicero or, or some really great author and you were kind of knowing where to pause and so on. So people would actually make some marks into their own manuscripts before they would give a speech and teachers would mark up copies for students who were learning good Latin or maybe even later for uh, somebody who was learning Greek because they were from elsewhere or was learning Latin. And then it was very difficult for people to know where the word starts and ends and where the grammar of the whole sentence is. So a librarian in um, in Egypt, in Alexandria, in 200 BC or so, invented dots, like a system of dots to tell people here is a half pause and like the sentence is half at the end. And here is the, the um, a medium, a bit of a longer pause. And here is the whole pause. So there's like a system of dots. And dots are very smart to use because you can just squeeze them in. And uh, they are, you can't mistake them for anything else. They're not the letter or anything else. They're just, they don't mean anything. It's just a dot. So that's a very smart choice. 
And then it took hundreds of years for spaces to actually come in. And again, those were language learners. So in ninth century Ireland, you had a bunch of monks who were, whose native language was Irish, was Gaelic, and they were learning Latin and they were copying the Bible and at the same time writing words like Irish words on top and so on. So in order to better be able to tell which Latin word is which translation in Gaelic, they put little spaces between the words. And that is actually completely changing world history. And I, I would say that this, <laughs> this act of genius is, is kind of the birth of civilization because once you have spaces between the words, you're really more able to uh, recognize words and identify them much more quickly. And when you can identify something that's written quicker and in a, in a more safe way, so it's like clear which word this is, you can't really mistake it with a beginning or end or something. Everything speeds up, right? Communication, trade, politics, research, all of those things speed up. And we have that again today, right? Where communication speeds up and then globalization happens and connection happens and so on. And then it took another couple of hundreds of years until we reached the Renaissance, where the repertoire of punctuation that we have today is being developed. And again, those were scholars who were uh, reflecting on pausing. So they wanted more nuanced pauses. And again, they wanted to make visible what is inherent in the language anyway. So, for example, for the parentheses, there was a, a literary device of interposing and um, inserting another story in a story. So they, people knew that. People did that all the time, going off on a tangent and coming back in the same sentence or uh, in a bigger story. But what they did then in the Renaissance was like, actually, we let's invent signs to make clear that that's happening and to see it immediately, even as we are reading. And so uh, the the punctuation repertoire that we have today is essentially the same as in the 17th century because it seems to be working well for us and we don't <laughs> seem to be needing anything else. This blows my mind that it took a long time to go, maybe there should be some spaces between these things. Just the idea that that's invented, that language is hurtling along and then like... Uh, uh, it's like putting wheels on luggage or something like, like, why didn't we just immediately do that? It seems like that would be nice, but you know, I have to remember the written language wasn't something that was, uh, just everybody carried around with them. It was the purview of a select group of very language oriented scholarly monk people for a very long time. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah. I think you are quite right about it. It's really fair to say that there's also a certain level of keeping language locked away from the common people by not using punctuation, right? By making it really difficult to read, such as, again, to go back to Cicero, not everybody can be a Cicero. Not everybody can, ha can have this amazing knowledge and eloquence to be able to read without punctuation. And the history of punctuation is also uh, one of a process of democratization in every single for every single person who had this amazing idea so the monks in Ireland the Greek Alexandrian librarian the people who day today who invent uh, emojis or something um, that's always uh, there's always the democratizing drive behind that either it is for people who are inexperienced readers and that makes it easier for people to read and and so more people have access to the word. Uh, or it's really for political purposes. For example, in the late 19th century in Israel and in Egypt, people were importing European punctuation marks into Hebrew or modern Hebrew and into Arabic in order to help the process of uh, nation making. So uh, in uh, Egyptian kind of intelligentsia realized that a lot of research of Arab countries was being done in French and a little bit in English. And they wanted to stop that because they saw that Arabic was losing its its edge as a, as a language for research and for knowledge and so on. And Arabic at the time just had a few marks in order to, to um, mark a paragraph, for example. So they were experimenting with a new set of punctuation and they didn't find that didn't work very well. So they just imported the European punctuation 
to um, allow people who didn't have this years-long education in Arabic, because Arabic is very, very complicated, the grammar is complicated, for Arabic speakers themselves. So they wanted to make Arabic accessible in, in terms of writing and reading. And uh, early Zionists wanted to help Hebrew as a, a, a nation, a national language. So they also imported um, punctuation marks. So I think it's really incredible how these details and nuances of expression can have an incredible power and an incredible ripple effect that we're not really aware of and, and, and we're not supposed to be aware of because they're supposed to sort of be invisible. Okay, let's get into it. The exclamation point. What is this thing? Well, the first instance of the exclamation point, as we use it today, appeared in 1399, which to me just seems very late. And since then, it has gone by many names, including the screamer, the slammer, the bang, the gasper, the shriek. And as Florence explains in her book, an admirable point, which, by the way, was another term for this exclamation point. But its usage has always been a subject of debate, hence all these weird names, screamer, slammer, gasper, especially when you do multiple exclamation points side by side in a row, which as far as we know, putting three marks back to back, that was first done, first introduced as extra emphasis 400 years later, 1788. More on that in a second, but first, Let's get this out of the way. Which is it? Is it the exclamation point or the exclamation mark? Here's Florence. Well, actually, if you want to use a more original term, probably point is more correct because they would say maybe a note of admiration or a point of admiration in the past, so in the 16th, 17th, and maybe early 18th century. And in the UK, something happened in the 1860s, 1850s that we still are not entirely sure what happened, that British people suddenly started to say exclamation mark. So the linguist David Crystal suggests that there was an economic war between, or like an economic conflict between the US and the UK. And so anything American was off-putting. So, so for some reason, other people thought, okay, maybe that's also in our language and we need to reflect that in our language. He also suggests that change usually happened from schools or from kind of kindergartens outwards. So for some reason or other, perhaps school teachers used a different term and then that sort of trickles out. But what really, what I find puzzling is why is it also question, question mark? So why the question mark, but the exclamation point in the U.S.? And then in the UK, it's question mark and exclamation mark, which seems to make more sense in that sense. And they would also say note of interrogation in the past or an interrogation point. Did I see somewhere in your bio that you are specializing in studying brackets? Yes. That's, that is such an alien concept that a person could study brackets. <laughs> just seems like, how in the world is this a thing? Please tell me more. Yes. Well, it's actually a big thing and, and it's an ongoing research and it's just the gift that keeps on giving. So I'm I'm a Renaissance literature person. So I was, I was looking at printed texts, early printed texts, that manuscript and so on. And I kept seeing how many brackets or how many parentheses there were in these in these original editions. And then I compared them to the editions that you read as a student. But all of those parentheses are being taken out. And the, um, the spelling has changed to make it more modern and more accessible. And I, I kept wondering, well, surely something is going on here. We take these things out, but they seem to be really important and they seem to be everywhere. And then I started to read a little bit about the history of punctuation, how that came about and how the bracket was invented um, in the early Italian Renaissance and how it sort of then trickled up into Northern European languages and, and literatures. And then it found this explosion in the 16th century and early 17th century, and particularly in texts that were about knights going off on an errand, going through the forest and getting off track and meeting a dwarf and then going this way and that way and then returning to the original quest and I was thinking well that's somehow like 
a parenthesis. So you have an original text and then you sort of push or insert something else. And you then, after the something else, reconnect to what has been there before. So I felt that there was a mirroring going on between the sentence structure and the punctuation and what's going on on a bigger level in terms of these stories that kept being distracted and so on. And right now, actually, I'm researching a little bit about mind wandering and what happens when we kind of go off uh, in our heads and then we sort of come back to the present and so on. So I felt that there was a strange kind of connection between thinking about how the mind works, thinking about thinking, and then that somehow becomes visible in this piece of punctuation in connection to literary forms that are all about being distracted and then coming back to what has been before. And this kind of strange, <laughs> strange knot of stuff became then an all-encompassing interest in anything punctuation-related and definitions of punctuation and that then sort of bled into the past and into the future. So I was researching the origins of punctuation. Where does that come from? Because anything human, as you know, has a history. And where does punctuation go nowadays where technology is changing the way we communicate through text? If I'm hearing you correctly, you were studying parentheticals and this led you on what felt like a parenthetical life journey. In that parenthetical life journey, there was a need for a second set of parentheticals. So we're going to have to add brackets to the parentheses, which is the exclamation mark book. And now, if you're following it as a story, if this is your night's journey, you're going to leave that and go back to your previous parenthetical work and then maybe pop all the way back out again to where you started. Is this maybe possibly a true thing about your life, Florence? I think I think that's possibly very true. <laughs> <laughs> the I think the exclamation mark or exclamation point is actually a really nice reflection of the of the parentheses because the parentheses are a little bit brainy it's a little bit cognitive so what is happening is something else is going on at the same time it's very often people for example back in the days and now put an alternative thought into a, a parentheses so something that is maybe said in private said in secret something else going on an afterthought or a, sub a subordinate thing that maybe even might be quarreling or might be qualifying what's going on outside. And then the exclamation point is so brash and noisy and it's not at all secret about its presence. And it introduces emotion for the first time into this world of punctuation and world of text, like very obvious emotion. Although, of course, I would also contend that a good writer like Ernest Hemingway, for example, can put a hell of a lot of emotion into a full stop or the lack of it. So... Um, the, but the exclamation point in that sense was my my straying into the world of feelings, I suppose. And now I am indeed returning. I understand from reading your book that the reason, of all the punctuation, the semicolon gets a lot of uh, love-hate, but nothing like the exclamation mark. This is something where it has its own trajectory as a as a concept and people who are really precious with language sometimes that that love of it that love of punctuation and of words will lead them to really try to push the exclamation uh, point on people our others though however will be like we should never use this thing ever this is bad this is this this dirties up this makes my language vulgar to get into that, where did it come from? What is the origin of this thing? Because it, it wasn't there forever, and it took actually a long time. We had the question mark before we had the exclamation point. How did this? How come? What's going on there? Yet again, as as it seems to be the case in punctuation history, it kind of goes back to one person feeling that there is a need, and we need to address that need somehow. So this was a scholar in Italy, in Urbino, a lawyer, a scholar, a humanist, so somebody interested in language and in Latin, who uh, wrote a treatise on punctuation and in his treatise he said it, he was kind of annoyed that people were reading exclamations as either statements or questions so uh, he felt that we needed a sign in order to make sure that people change their voice and people also know that there's something else going on here and that's not a statement or a question so he said we need to have a dot at the bottom and a sort of an apostrophe 
uh, from the top of the line. Weirdly, he didn't make the actual sign. He sort of just described it. And he called it the point of admiration. So admiration and wonder. That's what he wanted to uh, people to, to mark, which I think is really beautiful that we tend to think of the exclamation mark as this like explosion of feeling, maybe even rage, maybe surprise, maybe something like um, what the hell or something like that, like some really strong, potentially negative emotion. But actually, originally, it was supposed to point out wonder and, and something miraculous, which is actually rather beautiful and, and kind of gentle and careful a careful emotion i feel um and then it took another 50 years so this was in a, in a manuscript actually and for some reason or other this manuscript must have reached another punctuation fan Coluccio salutati in 1399 who invented the parentheses by the way so he he seems to be really into uh making sure that how his text is read he also because we have the manuscript where he inserted the exclamation mark and the parentheses by hand into a text that was copied by his scribe. So this is really the man himself who goes and who inserts that by himself because he feels that that's really uh, necessary. The minutiae of, of the sentence is really important to him. For some reason or other, he must have gotten hold of a copy of this manuscript from before, and he then translates that wordish description into the actual sign as he is writing his manuscript, which was a satirical text on how law is more honorable than medicine. And then he exclaims in that text. So you're telling me that a person, like uh, oftentimes people will ask like who invented this and there's no such thing because something has to take a lot of steps to, to emerge and there's no one inventor. But you're telling me, Florence, that a single human being said, we need an exclamation mark I'm going to invent it. Invent it. Here we go. Yes, that's that, that seems to be, to be what has happened throughout the history of punctuation. So we have the the exclamation point, the exclamation mark that's been invented like that, the parentheses, and and then we have the dot dot dot, so the ellipses. And and with that one, we're not entirely sure who invented it. We have a play text from the late 17th century where people were using a dash 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 which then at some point must have migrated down to the bottom of the line. So we don't necessarily have a person then who really wrote about that and chose to do that and so on, but we can kind of know the social context and the printing context. But other than that, punctuation really seems very often to just spring from the heads of these enlightened people. This is amazing. And like most of this is between like 1400 and 1600. So it's like also relatively recent and, and just this, like ex this sort of Cambrian explosion of new species thing with punctuation. I did. I don't. I can't believe I'd never thought about this until reading your book. But this means that when I read something like from Marcus Aurelius or something, or if I read even Shakespeare, like the the a lot of the punctuation was added later. It wasn't there to begin with. Which means the punctuation itself is some sort of interpretation of what might have gone there. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. And again, I think it's really so connected uh, to technology as well. So what was at people's disposal? Even some a text like Marcus Aurelius that has been just copied and copied and copied throughout the centuries, and then at some point was printed. So the printer, in order to produce something, has to have a set of real material things. Nowadays, we just press a key on the keyboard and poof, there is any letter that we want and, and it's potentially endless, right? But people in the past, when they were still setting the type that was being printed, they only had a limited amount of print of uh, type available. So sometimes they would actually need to do a dot and an apostrophe because they just didn't have any exclamation marks left. Or if they were a printer that was usually printing scientific text or the Bible where you don't really have any exclaiming, let's say, they might not actually have an exclamation mark, but perhaps they wanted to get into printing play text or poetry, which naturally has more exclamations. They would have to make do with something else. Or perhaps the E has already been used up. So maybe now they can't use an E for a, a, a word. So they, they have to use an U a U or an, uh, any other letter that kind of looks similar, uh, hoping that things will be fine <laughs> because spelling at the time in the 17th century and in the 18th century 
was much more capacious. So people were not bothered about any particular spelling. So it wasn't, there wasn't such a thing as a standardized spelling quite yet. Some people wanted to get there, but in, in general, it was much more open. So that was possible. So it's really connected to what is actually available for people. And then the choice of the typesetter, for example. And uh, very rarely the author would have, in, in the olden days, the author would have a say in in uh, the punctuation or the spelling or in fact the textual version so we have no proof whatsoever that Shakespeare was involved in the printing of his play texts there is a, a scene in Midsummer Night's Dream where punctuation is really important for the joke what was the was the joke so the joke is in the Midsummer Night's Dream at the end where the mechanicals go to uh, to the king and they have this play. They play Pyramus and Thisbe from like a, a Ovidian Roman story of metamorphoses between two lovers and they become other things when they die and so on. And uh, the mechanicals or the, the kind of lower people are really bumbling in this Roman like precious and well-respected story and they for example one is the moon plays the moon and then he has like a little lantern or one um plays the wall between the two lovers and the the different kinds of productions uh, become really creative with how do they present the wall as a person so maybe somebody has like a elvis like uh, <laughs> bat kind of uh, uh, uh code or something like that and they, the, there is a prologue who comes on stage and he talks to the king and the, all the people who are there, all these noble people. And it, it, the joke depends on the punctuation because if you read it in the way that they pause, it becomes very uh, offensive. So, for example, we are here not to please you, but to please ourselves or something. And depending on how you put the pause and the full stop and the comma, of course we are here to please you. But then, depending on the on the on the pauses, um, it becomes offensive. So that is clear. You know, it's something that you need to read. So um, and it's something that the production needs to be really careful in bringing out. So in this particular instance, where the joke actually does depend on the pauses and on the punctuation, we can conjecture that. That was really important to people, and they would make sure that that would translate. That's great. They're, they're, are they are they avoiding? It's like this will this will seem like a dirty joke unless we put a a, a punctuation mark in here. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Nice. I had no idea. That's that's, <laughs> that's so great. I love it. Uh, this leads me to the, a, a really fun part of the book of and this journey getting getting toward the present here, which is so, okay. So now we have printing presses and typesetting and uppercase and lowercase and all that stuff. And there's an actual objects that we have to use. There's not an infinite number of exclamation marks that I can put in my thing. The typesetter may only have a few of these things. In fact, they may only have one. So it would be really weird and uncommon and strange to put three exclamation marks and to really exclaim something like, which, which I love that about this particular piece of punctuation. You can, you can do that with question marks too. Uh, but you know, you're not gonna put like 12 commas to, or, or six semicolons, <clears throat> but you'll do it with an exclamation mark. You'd be like, like I, I put three in there. That's how much I mean it. This is something that couldn't be common because of typesetting. You point out in the book that in 1788, the Boston Gazette has a headline that uses three of these things and it must have been bonkers to see that and it affected things. Could you talk about that just a little bit? Yes. So the American constitution needed to be ratified in all of the states and that was a process of several months. So there was a lot of negotiation going on. There was a lot of emotions in the air and so on. And there was a worry that the constitution might, uh, something might be changed. And so the, uh, the the process was stalled. And so the Boston Gazette had this headline with the, with the exclamation marks to draw people's attention to that there might be uh, something um, going on that's not quite right. And then the politicians themselves made sure that every state would ratify the constitution other uh, because of this pressure of this headline with these exclamation marks that had 
feelings fly so high. I wonder, like, did they have three laying around? They had to go ask some people to help them go two cities over and get their exclamation marks? Because you had to typeset these things. I just love the idea that for a period of time, you only had so many that you could spare. So it was odd to put more than one in, in a row. This leads me to this beautiful period of time where you write about extensively. Where, so punctuation's everywhere, and you have these authors. Uh, you mentioned F. Scott Fitzgerald. He said that uh, putting an exclamation mark in your is like laughing at your own joke. Uh, there's like all these periods of time. There's minimalism, and then you go into the like gaudy, let's just, who cares? I've, in fact, I'll make every one of my words a different color if I feel like it. You have this list of books, novels, like Elmore Leonard out of 45 novels has 49 exclamation marks. Ernest Hemingway out of 10 novels has 59. And you go through all these people, you're, Neil Gaiman, Chuck Palahniuk, is going up into the hundreds at, at some point here. And Salman Rushdie's Midnight Children has 2,131. What do we derive from all of this about this strange evolution of just tossing these things around? What do you, th- what do you think's going on there? I think um, there is a real mistrust of feelings going on and feelings expressing themselves in text or potentially like a wildfire, like this Boston Gazette wildfire, uh, being transmitted like a virus kind of from, from person to person as we are reading, because it is actually quite um, magical how very, very strong feelings can be provoked by text, right? And then these very strong feelings can be multiplied through uh, a sign that doesn't mean anything. It's just a dot and a, and a stroke, right? It do, it's not even a word. So how is it possible that we can get so, our feathers can get so ruffled <laughs> if we see this one particular sign in this one particular context, for example? So I think in the 20th century, um, for some reason or other, the, uh, people developed a mistrust of feeling and then the mistrust of rhetoric because not very long before so in the early 19th century until the early 19th century I would say rhetoric was super revered right people were also quite aware that you can convince and draw people to the wrong side through being very eloquent that's clear but still they really um they really uh admired somebody who was a good speaker and who could actually convince people. And there are lots of treatises of the Renaissance and going back to uh, classical times that tell you how to be very emotional, extra emotional, both in terms of your writing and in terms of how you hold yourself when you when you give a speech. And you were supposed as a, as a writer and as a speaker to feel the feelings yourself that you were talking about so that you can really transmit them to your audience or to your readers so that they would also feel them. But then something in the late 19th century and very much in the 20th century happened, I'm not still quite sure what it is that happened, that we became so suspicious of somebody who talks well and of a sign such as the exclamation mark that just is so unapologetically representative of feeling whatever those feelings are and might be, that the we, we just started to have this dislike and distrust and it's kind of too much and it's maybe even feminized, for example. And so it, it should never be used for anything that is formal or scientific or professional. Oh yeah, was it the 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 flaming peak scarf? Is that what it was that mm-hmm. <laughs> you said feminized? Was it Noah Lukeman called <laughs> An exclamation mark, a flaming pink scarf. Uh, just uh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, it felt like I didn't want to. I didn't want to lose the fact that you wrote that. That's so bonkers. Exactly. So Noah Lukman is a writing gives writing advice. Uh, has a little manual for for how to be a good writer, and uh, the, the exclamation mark is called the um, flaming pink scarf. So don't use it too often. In the same way that you would, um, you can't wear um, orange bright neon dress clothes, high heels that are violet or whatever, and then have also the flaming pink scarf that is the exclamation mark because it really just erupts from the page. In the same in that same way, you need to be careful, he says, with those those little kind of volcanoes of emotion and set them properly. But actually it is true that women use the exclamation mark more often in online communication. So uh, uh, a computerized communication researcher has 
um, has looked at chat rooms. This was in 2006, so that's really just the only study that I found, which is a bit of a shame. I would like to um, reproduce it and see how that might have changed and, and have different contexts. But she found out that women were indeed using exclamation marks more often, but they were using it in order to create a con, um, inclusive space and to be friendly. So the exclamation mark would follow words like no problem, exclamation marks, hey, welcome, <laughs> have, have a nice day, exclamation mark. Whereas men were more likely in this platform to use three exclamation marks and to be angry and to be raging in their exclamation marks. This so fast. So you have this strange period of time where like, don't use these things. It's too much. Let's be stoic in our presentation for whatever reason. I'm sure there are many sociological reasons that lead to this weaponized rhetoric. But you, as you trace in the book, like it's, it comes back in a big way. Like, and eventually you've got these extremely well-revered authors who are using gazillions of these things. And then all of us finally get the gift of not only a lot of literacy and typewriters, and then we get digital. You get to now and whoa, there's a lot of, you already said it, like I was going to ask that as like one of my last questions was when I write emails, like the very first thing I have to do now is decide, do I start with a comma after the person's name or an exclamation mark? I have to make that decision every time. And I do think about it, like, is, is this an appropriate time to introduce this? Or it all throughout the text of that email, should I, if I don't put one in there, I now feel like it's going to come across as I'm, throat singing at the person like i am looking to write to you and i would like for you to reach to me like like it needs to feel like a person's writing it and then i'm like well how many is too many and i often get emails professional emails that have so many exclamation and i just feel like uh we haven't sorted this out yet and it's fun and weird what do you think about like what's the balance how do you would you when you write emails it must be even more so because you're an expert on the topic so what do you do do you do you but a ton of I looked at our emails and I was like, it's, this seems like a pretty standard exchange. Uh, but but do you feel these feelings too? I feel these feelings too, for sure. And uh, I notice there's a difference. Again, a lot of stuff comes into play here: age, gender, nationality. I have a friend from Italy, and she really does use more exclamation marks. <laughs> <laughs> so no matter how stereotypical it might sound, it's it, it really is is true. I think that um, there is something about voice and about representation that we want our personality to be reflected in what we write, especially if it's a relatively casual email exchange. Maybe if you write to your lawyer uh, or if, if you are the, the bank teller that's writing or something, then the expectation is different. Although I also have received emoji-filled messages from my bank that I, honestly I wasn't entirely happy about. <laughs> so that's maybe my bias against emojis um, and I think rather than to maybe uh, give a prescription in terms of only make sure that you use maximum three exclamation marks and never three in a row or so I would say that people can just lean back and trust their human instincts because humans are incredibly smart creatures when it comes to social context most of the time and we can tell very very well what we need in a certain context so even children as young as 10 and 12 knew that it's okay like in, in, in kind of uh, studies sociolinguistic studies that it's okay to be fun in your messaging with your friends but you can't do that when you write a, an essay for example and deliberately changing spelling like you know can you remember these lol cats these memes that had like lol cats these like memes yeah i had cheeseburger and stuff oh, yeah, so, sure. like yeah, deliberate, yeah, yeah. so this is deliberate making deliberate mistakes right so even children are very aware that these are deliberate mistakes and i'm allowed to make them but i can do that when i write something else in a different context and uh, so it's a social, it depends on the social context and the, the format. Again, you can't possibly, you can't put like an emoji when you're writing a letter, for example, but you probably will put them when you write a text message, even just purely because you can, because you have the phone, but also because text messaging is usually more informal. Although there's also, there are also linguists like Tyler Schnevelin, for example, who has um, looked at his own text messages and has seen that he is actually using the full stop when he is writing chunks of messages, especially so longer than I think 
20, uh, 20 words or so, which is actually just two sentences. That's already 20 words or even less. And especially when those sentences include words like love, hate, think, know, believe, feel. So when we have more to say, we will actually be a bit more particular and a bit more careful in our punctuation. And as I said, it depends on age as well. So it depends on your educational background. Boomers tend to really have had all the hate against the exclamation mark. So they will probably find it weird and um, and too much and too loud when someone puts them. Millennials are will probably say, oh, the person who doesn't put an exclamation mark is cold and something's going on. Like I did a mistake, I made a mistake or something. And then Jen... Z is uh, is very happy to just just let it go. <laughs> yeah, I I I thanks to interacting with Jin uh, Z. I love I love. By the way, I wish I wish we said Z here. Uh, uh, the uh, I just respond many times to someone sending me a, some information with just an exclamation mark. That's it. Like my response back is that I was happy. There was someone in the, in the book that was a famous author who like was asking. What, how's my book doing question mark and, and the person just sent back this is way back and they just like sent them back one exclamation mark i, I don't remember who it was but the mm-hmm, yeah that was victor hugo and the les miserables mm-hmm. oh that's great he was asking how's it doing it, it just with a question oh, oh if i'm correct he sent a question mark and then the uh, the publisher just sent back an exclamation mark mm-hmm. we're not sure whether that's an uh, anecdotal but it's around. It's out there. Exactly. Well, that makes me feel good because I I do that in text messaging all the time. Like you get one exclamation mark, and we've we've our our interaction is complete. I don't have to do anything else. I love this book. It's great. I uh, who do you when you write a book like this? Who do you hope is the going to read this, and what do you hope they get out of it? I hope people read it who who are actually careful with their with their language and who are actually. Um, pausing and and taking a pause because punctuation is is supposed to be invisible. Yeah, that's true. It's supposed to be a catalyst, but it does make us stumble. Our eyes linger on commas, for example. Eye tracking studies have shown that, and it does kind of explode a little bit from the page. So I think we can all of us allow ourselves to decelerate a little bit and pay a little bit of attention once in a while to how we communicate and what what the the kind of nuances of our communication actually do and how powerful they are as you said with the pull stop so i think the book is for people who like to sometimes take a little pause and think about thinking and and think about um how, how do all of these things actually come together but i very much would like this book to be for for really anybody, especially educators maybe, who believe that there is one one right way of doing things. Because in the book, I also quote a little bit with the notion of grammar as being universal, inherent in language and unchangeable. So I'm very much not a stickler when it comes to grammar and when it comes to spelling, because all of those things are conventions that at some point we chose. And to judge people based on how well they can remember a certain a particular spelling makes absolutely no sense in terms of language. So I would like people to feel free to use whatever is available for them at the moment in the most effective way. So kind of going back to the Renaissance and putting a, a premium really on on convincing, expressing on rhetoric, on how can I say something in the most effective way based on the social context, based on the form, on the format, based on the technology that I'm using. So I want to actually give, kind of liberate people a little bit of the preconceived notions of language, grammar, and all the things that are around that. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com or check the show notes inside your podcast player. 
You can find my book, How Minds Change, wherever they put books on shelves and ship them in trucks. Details are at davidmcraney.com. And I'll have all of that in the show notes as well, right there in your podcast player. You can find all the past episodes of this show at Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or You Are Not So Smart. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSparkBlog. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free. But the higher amounts, we get you posters, t-shirts, sign books, and all sorts of other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. And the easiest way to support this program is just tell everyone you know about this show. And uh, especially if there's an episode you really, really liked, share that somewhere and say, hey, you might like this. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.